We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. I love that carol. It also has some parody versions. We three kings of Orient are, one in a taxi, one in a car, one on a scooter, beeping his suitor, following from afar. Oh, <laughs> you know how it goes. But what are these three kings really all about? Matthew chapter 2, which Horace just read for us, tells of these exotic visitors at the birth of Jesus. Christmas traditions have grown up in the medieval times around them being three kings. But it's actually quite unlikely the scholars think that they were kings. Our text calls them magi, which can also be translated wise men. Magi were sometimes employed by kings in the ancient world. They were scholars and priests. They were experts in astronomy, astrology, dream interpretation, sometimes the occult. And they studied ancient wisdom and could read the stars. This is true. Here in Matthew's Gospel, we have this charming account. They come searching for a new king to pay him homage. Now, some of you here, I guess, are tempted to sort of dismiss this as a kind of fun story for children. Let me just point out some words from uh, Dr. Richard France, who's a leading scholar of the New Testament. He writes of another famous visit by Magi that was made to Rome for the Emperor Nero in AD 66. And... Richard France says, it demonstrates that high-ranking Eastern Magi were willing and able to travel west for diplomatic reasons. There is evidence that astrologers in Babylonia, to the east, were interested in events in the Westland. Now, the amazing thing about this story, then, is not that, that Magi travel from the east, because they've got form. It's that they search not for an emperor in Rome, but for the king of the Jews. And God guides their quest to the infant Jesus. Here's how it happened. They come from the east, literally from the land where the sun rises, most likely Persia, what we call Iran. They traveled long and hard for weeks, maybe even for months. These would be wealthy, educated men. They weren't believers in the God of the Bible, though. They didn't know that God. They were pagans, worshippers of many gods with a kind of DIY religion. And this is one reason the story has the ring of truth. Because no self-respecting Jew in the first century would have made this up and put it in the Bible. The idea that pagan wise men come to pay homage to a Jewish king would have been embarrassing. But it did happen, so in it goes. Now, they may not have known God, but they did know the stars. And in the ancient world, people studied the stars for signs. And they believed that the birth of a great king could be marked by movements in the astral bodies. So these guys studied the stars, and they saw something, and they followed. And they came. They made the journey. They wanted to see a newborn king. And naturally, they turn up in the capital city, Jerusalem, to see him. And then they got stuck. Because stars will only get you so far. At some point, you need God to speak to you. Now it happened like this, the arrival of the Magi in Jerusalem, perhaps riding camels and accompanied by a retinue of servants, caused quite a stir. The local king, Herod, invited them into the palace and Herod was freaked out by what he heard. Now this man was known as Herod the Great, he ruled Palestine and was known for his building projects 
and his cruelty. He was what we would call a psychopath. History tells us that this Herod killed his own wives, his own children, and leading citizens if they got in his way. This incident now was near the end of Herod's reign and when he was particularly paranoid. And so this Herod, not even being Jewish, is vulnerable. He's insecure because he's hearing about the, the birth now of some rival king. Therefore, everybody else is alarmed as well because if Herod isn't happy, heads might roll. And so he calls a meeting of the top brains and says, Oi, where's this king of the Jews supposed to be born? I'm sure there were some red faces around the table. It was embarrassing. King of the Jews born, and they didn't even get the memo. But they do know their Bibles, and they recall a passage from the prophet Micah, written some seven centuries earlier. You heard it. You heard it read earlier on. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. What is all this about? Hope. It's about the hope of a better tomorrow. I hope when one day a better ruler will come. Notice what that prophecy says about him. He will have this amazing combination of strength and tenderness like a shepherd. But he'll also be a great ruler, a great leader. He brings national security. Even more, his greatness extends globally. He brings peace to the world. It's about hope. Hope for broken people. Hope for oppressed people that one day a king will come and set the world to rights. Now, once these magi hear the word Bethlehem, they pack up their bags, get on their camels, and make their way there. Not a tourist destination. It's quite a humble village. And I wonder what they expected to see. Did they expect to see a royal palace surrounded by guards, a royal family with a baby in the heart of luxury, wrapped in silk sheets, attended by nurses? But when they get to the house, they get the shock of their lives because they find a very humble location. Now, we don't know when they got there. The traditional nativity scenes, you know, with all the figures, they're always there around the manger with the shepherds. But that is unlikely. Mary and Joseph were only in Bethlehem for the census and then went home. And verse 1 says the Magi arrived after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So wherever it was, it wasn't a palace. The mother was a teenage peasant girl called Mary. Her new husband, a skilled tradesman, Joseph. And as the Magi come in, they see the infant. And they do the only thing appropriate for a newborn king, which is to drop to their knees. They pay homage. They bring out their gifts. Gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. No, it's frankincense, I know that. These are luxury goods. These are kingly gifts. And this, too, is the fulfillment of a hope. Isaiah chapter 60 predicts the glorious reign of God's king, the Messiah. The one who will banish all darkness and oppression and bring in a golden age of peace and prosperity and justice. And the gifts the people bring in Isaiah 60, they bear gold and incense. There it is again. So there's the story. That's what it's all about. Hope of a better tomorrow. So may I ask you, what are you hoping for in your life?
On what hopes is your life built? Are they strong? We all need hope, don't we? It's one of the most powerful forces in life. Some people have accomplished great things because they had strong hope. Some people have endured great pain because it was sustained by hope. But when hope is crushed, the human spirit is like a candle in the dark that flickers and goes out. We need strong hope. We all need it, including those whose lives appear to be sorted. And on the outside, they look secure and they look fine. They need hope too. An actress called Helen Monks gave an interview and said, all of my friends who've graduated from university are just so depressed. These are actually people who come from privileged backgrounds and have enough support and money and love. In theory, they should be doing all right. But she said, there's so little hope for the future. Everybody feels so trapped. I think Helen Monks has put a finger on something. That's, that's the problem. There's so little hope. Simply having an education or prosperity can't fix your deeper emptiness, which is spiritual. The body may be well-fed and healthy, the mind may be educated, but if the heart is hopeless and there's no hope for the future, what then? So how does this story give us hope? Three ways. God's heart, God's word, and God's gift. God's heart, God's word, and God's gift. Someone's got an alarm telling me to finish, but I'm going to do, go for five minutes more, all right? <laughs> Firstly, God's heart. When God sends Jesus Christ into the world to rescue the world, who does he come for? Is it only for the Jewish people? He is the Jewish Messiah, after all. Is it only for the children of Israel, the ancient people of God? No, he comes for the nations as well. Did you notice that? This picture of these magi from the east kneeling before the infant Jesus is a picture of God's heart for all people. God loves the nations. His Messiah is for everyone. Since the beginning of the Bible, God's plan is to reach the nations. Now, just out of interest, you may be under the impression that Christianity is a declining Western religion for white people. And if that's the, what your view, you're very mistaken. Philip Jenkins, who's a distinguished professor at Baylor University in North America, uh, has calculated the statistics of Christian growth around the world and, and, and shows us that Christianity is overwhelmingly a non-European, non-white faith. He projects that by the year 2050, there will be over 2 billion Christians in the world and the average Christian will be a black or Asian woman who is quite poor. It's for the nations. And that means that God's heart is for you. His plan is to reach out to you, no matter what your background is. Christianity is not for only one kind of person, not only one kind of background, not only one sort of education, one sort of social background. It is for every person. God is the Lord of all nations. So the hope of Jesus Christ is for you too, whoever you are, friends. God's, hope, God's heart is for you. That's God's heart. Secondly, God's word. This story shows us that people need God's word 
to find hope. Now notice from the story, you can hear, you can pick up information from God about in dreams and in creation. The Magi read the stars and followed the signs in the sky, and it, it led them very well to a point. And in verse 12, they were warned in a dream not to, to go back, to go back by a different route to escape Herod, and they did that, and the dream was true. You know, so creation and dreams can get you somewhere, but it can only get you so far because it's incomplete. At some point, they needed someone with a Bible to open it to them and point them to Jesus. And it's the same today. Many people around the world are picking up information about God from what they can see in creation. And many people are picking up information from God in dreams, especially people from a Muslim background. This is a global phenomenon at our time. And these things are helpful and true, but they will only get them so far. If you want to find the hope of Jesus Christ, you have to seek him in God's word, which we have helpfully translated into our own language. So what can you do about that? In January, we're running a course called Hope Explored. It's a three-week course. It's, it's one night a week for three weeks. And we'll be studying part of God's word called Luke, Luke's Gospel. It'll be here at the King Center. And if you want uh, details about that, check the front page of our website uh, or talk to one of us at the end at the back. You need God's word. God's heart, God's word, finally God's gift. Now we all probably remember the gifts that the Magi brought. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Kingly gifts fit for the king of kings who lay before them in his nappy. But just think about it for a moment. When you give a gift to God, you only give him something that he gave you in the first place. You give God your time, your talents, your treasure. You're only giving him back something, a portion of something he gave you in the first place. And let's remember what the greatest gift in the story is. It's not what they give to Jesus. It is Jesus himself. In the infant Jesus, the hope of the nations is fulfilled. In Jesus, our lives can find forgiveness. Can find somebody who really knows you and really loves you. In Jesus, we can find meaning and purpose and a future, a hope for the future after death, which he has secured for us by his resurrection. And this message is not a message of things you now need to do for God, as if you have to sort of give God stuff to get back. It is a message of something that has been done. It's been a gift all the way through. You know, every other religion in the world is about what you need to do and give God. You know how it goes. You've got to do this, do that, and the other. Give God your obedience. You've got to turn up at worship services and give God your worship. You've got to give some of your time and attention and maybe some money. You've got to give him religious observance. You've got to say your prayers and you hope in return that you're going to get something back from God. But in Jesus Christ, the giving is all one way. The direction of travel is all one way from God to earth to us, his gift. God's heart is for you. God's word is open so you can find Jesus and God's gift is there waiting to be found. Have a great Christmas. We're going to sing one carol as we close.